Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels the like, moment you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right. So, the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian. No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it. So we'll see. Hey, friends of the podcast. I'm Chad Kim, and with me this week, per usual, are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. In this week's podcast, we focus on book three of Origins on First Principles and his view of free will, which takes up the bulk of the work. It is important to remember that while we reference John Calvin in what is known as Reformed Theology, Calvin does not appear for another 1,300 years. We only raise awareness of him because just like Origen, Calvin is struggling with passages of Scripture that seem to indicate God ordains things to happen and that presents problems for human freedom. Calvin will err on the side of protecting God's sovereignty and will, and Origen will err on the side of human freedom. That being said, he absolutely does not believe that God is uninvolved with our lives. It is also important to note that Origen is writing against what are called Marcionites, who have a different view of the God of the Old Testament than did Calvin. So although the scripture passages and principles are similar, Marcionites did not think that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the God of the New Testament. Calvin, however, did. Thus, Marcionites are heretics, and Calvin, by most standards, was absolutely not. We also look at Origen's view of sin and how the devil works in our lives. It is also important to remember that theology often just is interpreting scripture correctly. So these passages that we look at with Origen will appear again and again throughout this podcast as different theologians seek to understand what scripture is telling us. All right, on to the podcast. Don't forget to check us out on facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Let's get into origin here. The, so the, I have a couple different things that I wanted to go through. Um, just as a point to one thing we mentioned in the previous podcast, we talked about the about translation. Um, and so this we're, we're reading an English translation of the Latin text uh, that is a translation of the Greek original from origin. And there are some surviving Greek fragments which are also here. But the primary text is a Latin one, um, and it's this guy, Rufinus, who translates it. And he says um, this about his translation. He said, um, so in these also, I have taken care not to translate such passages as appear to be contrary to the rest of Origen's teaching and to our own faith, but to omit them as forgeries put in by others. Um, If, however, he appeared to say anything novel of a kind about rational creatures, seeing that the essence of the faith is not involved in this, for the sake of knowledge and discussion, on occasions which perchance we had to reply to certain heresies in a certain order, I have not omitted such statements. Anyway, um, the point being, Rufinus comes right out and says, I've kind of cleaned up a little bit of the theology that I took to be um, false or, or, or heretical. And I only bring this up because it will play a part in stuff that we will read not too long from now, Hippolytus, among others, where we'll start to see Christians sort of purge their history um, after the Nicene Creed and after there's a firmly established idea of what is the true teaching. Um, And so I think some stuff comes through 
from origin that even like even later Christians would find heretical. Um, so I don't know that it's like there's nothing in here that's original to origin. I think there's a lot, uh, but it is worth bringing up as a consideration for much of what we're going to do. I mean, I, I don't want to get into a long in-depth conversation about translation, um, but every translation is an act of interpretation. Um, and so that that will play a role in how we're uh, reading origin and, you know, um, and scripture and other things. Hey, Chad, my text has um, a parallel Latin and Greek. I mean, there, it's English, but they have the parallel Latin and Greek version side by side. Is my Greek version also edited by Rufinus? Like is the Greek portion or is that this is just for this book? I don't have it for and it's only for the first section yeah. uh, that deals with free will. So, I mean, is that is that in theory an intact Greek text? In theory, that would be, yes, the words of origin. Yeah. it's So the Rufinus part is just about the part. So most of the time we're reading from the series called the Antonicene Fathers, which was um, edited and and translated in the 19th century in England. Um, And so what we're, you know, so what we're using has both Greek and Latin translations of origin, but the Latin one goes through Rufinus, what I just read. Um, the Greek one is a translation from what we have left from Origin himself. Well, one thing I'd like, I think it would be good for us to just jump into. I mean, this would have been a great week to finally get a reformed friend on with us <laughs> yeah. because uh, for our, just to kind of show our hand to our audience, which I think we've shown it plenty. We are three non reformed people. Like, and by that we mean we're non Calvinists. We don't favor, um, we have various views on predestination and free will for sure. It's not like I'm sure Chad and Trevor and I have the exact same view. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I certainly would say that you couldn't pigeonhole us as a partic- distinctly Arminian or something along those lines. But for our audience, there has long been this break uh, between Christians over the degree or the way in which human beings have free will. And a lot of Christians have essentially denied, not that not absolutely denied freedom in any sense, but have essentially said that salvation has nothing to do with human freedom. That is, that people who are saved are saved by God's predestined plan, and that human freedom does not factor into the equation. We do not have a choice on whether or not we uh, come to follow Christ. We are chosen. And so that's long been a debate, and that side tends to be, we just use the phrase Reformed or Calvinist. There are lots of different groups out there that believe that. Origen, he predates John Calvin by, oh, 1,200 years, 1,300 years. So he's addressing a group in his day that has a very similar view. So, so So we're just using the word Reformed or Calvinist as shorthand to speak of people who deny that human freedom plays a role in salvation and instead assert that it's God choosing. And so it's going to be hard because I feel like since we all definitely take a firm stand against that and origin takes a very firm stand against it, uh, it's there's going to be a one-sided conversation. I think we can all promise we will have a reformed counterpoint on at some point. Um, but we're also, I know for me, I was eating up what Origen was saying. I was 
loving it. <laughs> no, I I loved I loved it a lot. I loved like the explanations. I loved just the simple way he would make an analogous story that would be like a really good illustration of how something like God's grace would work upon uh, mankind and why it would seem as if something predestined is going on, but that's not the case. And I liked it all, but to be fair, I do get why, or at least the Calvinist friends I have. And I would imagine even these people that origins interact with, I understand that there's probably this idea for them, at least not just textual evidence, which origin talks about, which mm-hmm. is mostly what this is, is him uh, going over verses like in Romans nine and things like that. But also I think there's like a heart attitude of you're giving more glory to God because you're recognizing his sovereignty. And it, at least it's, it's just like a general attitude I get it, normally at least mm-hmm. from Calvinists and in a good way. That, yeah. In yeah, a, in a good, good way. way. And yeah. I res- and I respect that a lot. So, yeah. For sure. And we'll, I'll try to nuance this um, uh, as we go through origin, uh, but he's going to make very clear that he does not. So one of the pro like, uh, well, let, let's, I'm going to do a quick little synopsis um, of the history of this conversation, just to try to avoid a little bit as we can uh, anachronism. Uh, so, which is to say taking, you know, contemporary thoughts and applying them to the ancient context um, and so this is, you know, a lot of times historians are worried, you know, well, let's not just assume that the ancients think how we think. Um, and I know Tom, Tom and I have used this word before. I just want to make sure um, that, that, you know, and all of us are going to be guilty of anachronism to some degree, but you try to remove it as you can. Um, and it appears that the heretics that Origen has in mind or the people who believe that we are sinful by nature. The people that he has in mind are actually the false Gnostics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marcion, Valentinus, people that we've talked about uh, believe that God created, well, and not the God of the Old Testament basically, created human natures to be evil and then just decided to rescue some. And so in order to be, um, you, th- this shows up a little bit um, on, uh, let's see, chapter one, uh, book eight, um, and uh, so that he uh, and he quotes uh, Romans one um, here. And, but but basically, um, a lot of people think that those are who he has in mind. So again, this predates Calvin um, by sev- by a, over a millennia. It also predates um, Saint Augustine and Pelagius, um, who have this conversation over free will. Um, but I think that Origen believes that God is active participant. With uh, or we are active participants with God, um, so it's not just absolutely that God preordains what we do and how we do it. Um, but uh, He has this line that's that's interesting on one sixty nine. But if this disobedience was implanted, speaking of Pharaoh, so this is one of those landmark texts for Calvinists. They look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus story, and they say that's evidence that God damns and reprobates some. And Augustine will pick up on this as well. Uh, but if this, and so Origen says, but if this disobedience was implanted in him by nature, what further need was there for his heart to be hardened by God? Uh, and that not once, but several times. There was none, unless we assume that it was possible for him to yield to persuasion. Um, so this is where he begins um, to have this conversation about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
where where these his opponents think that God uh, made someone to to have an evil nature. Yeah, and actually, can I kind of expound on that just a little bit? What he's kind of reflecting on there is something I'd never considered before, but what he takes to be an inconsistency in the view that he's arguing against. The inconsistency being this, that the people who, who are his detractors, that is those who disagree with him, believe that mankind has a corrupt nature. Now, I think, now we as Christians, we all believe in a fall, and we all believe that that fall has various consequences, but some believe that the fall renders us incapable of choosing to follow God. And he seems to be addressing that kind of a view, that if our nature, that our nature is so corrupt that we cannot choose him. So he brings us out because lots of people who hold to a view like that will quote from Romans 9, which is what he's referencing here. And he says in that, he quotes in that how Paul, or he refers to how Paul quotes from Exodus, talking about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he says, why would God have needed to harden Pharaoh's heart if Pharaoh already had a nature that was corrupt? He would not mean to do so, as Pharaoh would already make such a choice. So he's essentially saying the text itself actually works against that particular kind of view, which is just frankly something I had never considered before. And mm. and I should add before anybody picks up on this, because I think there's a lot to discuss here. I love what Origen's doing here because he actually sets off at the start quoting several different lines of scripture from the Old and the New Testament in argument for freedom of will and saying, look, the scriptures teach free will. But then he stops and says, now there are some passages that seem to be in tension with this. Now, and this is can I just a real quick soapbox. This for me is the thing that I really get frustrated with. And it's from people on every side of a debate like this. And that is when somebody comes in and says, look, the Bible plainly teaches X. Mm -hmm. And that's really frustrating because whenever you have a theological debate that has existed for 2000 years, for two millennia, like this debate has, it is never it is never rooted in a text or in a series of texts in the Bible that just plainly teach something. Um, it's, it's just dishonest to try to say, it would be dishonest of me to say that somebody who believes in the kind of predestination that a reformed person believes in is just reading what he wants to into the text. I know that in this text of scripture, there are things that seem to teach predestination like they believe in. I know that. That is a tension in there. But it's also intellectually dishonest for him to say the same about me, to say that because you don't believe what we see, that you therefore don't care what the scripture says. You're just you're just asserting what you want to. Origen here acknowledges there's a tension. Some scripture seems to teach this one thing. There are some that be that are intention to that. So I'm going to try to explain what those mean. And that's what he's doing here in, in Romans 9, and I, or when he's talking about Romans 9. And it seems to me that if we're going to ever progress theologically like as a like as a church or as individuals we have to engage in this discussion with each other if you sit in a group of people amongst a group of theologians and read theologians who just agree with your viewpoints i i just don't i don't see what the benefit or the point of that is like this is the process of theology we work through the tensions we reason through it yeah i thought this was really well laid out because he starts he starts more mostly rooted in philosophy, saying, look, we have as a church some beliefs 
And he goes, and here's natural reasons. And he, he even goes into a bit of biology and stuff. But he, he goes, here's some natural uh, reasons that, that we can use to deduce that we have free will. And he goes, and then beyond that, he kind of makes a small argument like we need um, free will to be morally responsible. And then he kind of keeps coming back to that too later. He'll throw it back in like, and of course that's true because we are morally responsible and God is just and good. And so he, he, he throws that key premise in there. And then he goes scriptural evidence, like you said, and then he comes back and this is the cool theology part, but it's also just good argument structure. And then he comes back and goes, but there's these verses that are contentious and they seem to teach the other view. And that's actually the bulk of the text, which to me is how like good philosophy proper is written as well. When you spend most of your paper, most of the time, just talking about the objections, basically answering objections. That's what you should be doing. And so, yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah. So to move to another way that he handles this tension and specifically, and I also like that origin basically anticipates the major foci uh, fo- fo- focuses foci of debate um, for this very conversation being, you know, Exodus, um, the early passages of Exodus and Pharaoh hardening his heart, and then Romans 9, and then even Ezekiel, uh, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I mean, these are going to be re- referred to again and again. And at some point in our very early discussions of what theology is, we talked about theology being a conversation on the correct interpretation of Scripture. Um, so we're seeing a little bit of that worked out now in this guy before St. Augustine, before Pelagius, before Calvin, already identifying, look, these are the passages um, that are going to matter in this conversation. Um, And I like the way that he handles it. So in some ways, um, you know, oftentimes, as I understood the Reformed position, they'll talk about God showing mercy and then God showing his justice and maybe his anger and judgment. And uh, basically, as far as I understand origin, he sort of whittles it all down to God's being merciful. Um, And so he says in book three, chapter 10, um, it is not God's uh, purpose to harden, but that he acts with kindly intent and that the hardening follows as a result of the substance of evil present in the particular evil person. Um, And during this time in displaying his kindness and forbearance, those who treat his kindness and forbearance with contempt and pride have their heart hardened. Uh, while the punishment of their misdeeds is being deferred, whereas they who receive his kindness and forbearance as an opportunity of repentance and amendment obtain mercy. So God just is merciful. And then there are those people who respond to God's mercy, some with contempt and others who say, oh, shoot, God is being kind to me, um, even though I'm doing, I- I've done wrong. So I should recognize this as a place where I can repent, learn something new and act differently. Um, but God's intent um, is is kindly, is good. And I don't know that a Calvinist would disagree with that per se. I just like the emphasis on it being God's mercy. Um, I mean, it, it certainly is a, a little bit of a peculiar concept. Like you would imagine if someone shows you mercy, um, that you wouldn't be contemptful of them. Um, but I... I don't know that that is uh, foreign to human nature. I mean, there are just, you know, you'll, you will tread on people who show you kindness um, and you'll take them as doormats. Um, and then for, for origin, he says, and you just further demonstrate your need for judgment uh, because 
you, you know, bite the hand that feeds you. Well, and this actually, what you just said kind of, <coughs> excuse me, kind of refers back to something I brought up last week, but there, there is this thing that I've, this thing that's kind of come up as I've had conversation with people from more of a reformed background where I, they'll often criticize me and say that I focus too much on mercy and not enough on justice. But I do take contention with that. I contend with that idea because my concern isn't here about mercy. It is about justice. The idea that God randomly, that's not really fair. They don't necessarily like the idea of randomness. They wouldn't necessarily say that God randomly chose. But the idea that God chooses some people as opposed to others for no reason in themselves, that seems unjust. The, The concern there isn't, is not about mercy. It's about a lack of justice in that. And so, and I, and the response that I've often heard is, well, God doesn't need to save anybody. He can condemn all. He's right in doing so. He's just in doing so. Therefore, it is mercy to save some. To which I say, no, not at all. He is, in fact, justified in condemning all because all have, in fact, incurred his divine wrath in that sense. Like, we... We do, in fact, deserve judgment. So he is justified in condemning us all. But what is not just is to then turn around and say, oh, well, never mind. I'm actually going to save some because that actually is something that figures into justice. Any uh, metaphor or analogy that you would use in a human court, for instance, that lines up would just show the injustice of it, right? A person commits murder, judge condemns him. He goes and he serves his sentence. Ten people commit murder. He condemns them all. They go and they serve their sentence. It becomes unjust if the judge says, okay, all ten of you have committed murder, but actually I'm going to condemn you six over there to the electric chair, but you four, I'm not going to condemn you. You get to go home free. And if they say why, his response is, I have just decided as such. I'm a judge. I know better. That seems unfair unless there's a reason which – I contend there must be a reason. It's almost, yeah, I've heard before a sort of corporate analogy for this as if it were like the, the kind of defense of this I've heard is, well, look, it's like your football team, everyone gets in trouble, but as mercy, you let some of the team off so that the team at least survives or something like that. That's the kind of way I've heard it described. I probably didn't even do justice, but. I'm trying to do the Calvinist justice right now. So, but that's the kind of way I've, I've heard it, but I don't know. But I, I, I see your point. But, that's, but that seems, that analogy, and I'm not familiar with that analogy, Yeah, that seems utilitarian, not just, right? I mean, if you just are like, I need a football team, I need to field a football team, so I'm just going to have to take 11 guys and the rest are going to have to, yeah, you or, know, that just, that's not just, it's still not just, it's just expedient. Because the other one I heard too is like, as if it were a king, like, and it was a foreign peoples. And he's like, look, all you foreign peoples, I'm just going to kill you all. Oh, as mercy, I'll let some of you foreign peoples live. But even then, then I go, well, now it's just, I mean, I Well, that's just caprice. Yeah, and right? now he's, I'm like, well, now it's just, exactly. He's yeah. a king. At that point, he's, because why there's some force in that analogy is the king goes in assuming he doesn't need to be just to those people because they're not his. Right? right. He goes in and he goes, it doesn't matter because you're not my kingdom. So I'll save some of you, but that's neither mercy nor justice. That's just him deciding to not kill some people. And it's based entirely upon his capriciousness, which is one of the 
charges that would be leveled. Uh, and, the other, and the other thing is I also find it always disanalogous because though we are, you know, adopted as it were, uh, ideally though, we are still, you know, at the end of the day, God's creation, his handiwork, whom he's, you know, loved. So it's still a bit different, I think, than a king and a yep. different people. But anyway. Oh, Chad, you, you actually referenced the one in that passage, though, getting back to his interpretation of Romans 9, mm-hmm. he, that, that he describes it as one operation. And I did want to bring up also, if we want to use human analogy, here's where analogy does serve us well, right, uh, to make Origen's point. So getting back to, um, to the point you made earlier, Origen argues, look, God's not going around forcing people to reject him. He didn't, he didn't, hardening Pharaoh's heart doesn't mean that he made Pharaoh do bad things. It says, Origen says, uh, God does a work and that work happens to have differing effects on people, right? So for Pharaoh, the work of God hardened his heart. That same work for somebody else would have actually softened it. And if you think about human behavior, I mean, I thought your analogy was perfect. If I like we are maybe not I, but I mean, we've all seen situations of extreme magnanimity, like somebody being incredibly gracious and kind in the face of really awfulness. I mean, you know, somebody, uh, you know, you always hear about people being persecuted or being tormented and about them essentially telling their, their tormentors, I forgive you or -hmm. something along those lines. And you historically do hear of people repenting, like the tormentor feeling terrible and all of a sudden realizing what a monster he's been and totally turning his back on what he was doing and apologizing. And, and, and you hear about those two being reconciled. But then just as much, if not more, you hear of people, in fact, just being all the worse because the person is being kind and sweet. And I think we can look at our own hearts, right? I mean, I know that there have been times when I thought I had the moral high ground or the upper hand on somebody. And they were nice to me in the face of it. And it made me angry rather than soften me because then I felt like I lost that moral high ground or something. Or I thought that they thought that they had one upped me. You know what I mean? Like, so all he's saying is God works. And sometimes when God works, that hardens somebody's heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a very elegant solution to it. And in which case God is always merciful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that I mean, because the one thing that, you know, the one other way that some some people argue about this is they will say like uh, Ephesians 2 mentions the divine counsel. And so really, it's not caprice that God is up to when he chooses to show mercy on some and not on others. Really, um, it's we don't even know what is going on with God. Um, and so it's not really our job to understand how God makes these uh, decisions, as it were. Um, And we could also talk about backward causation and stuff, but I don't really think that most Calvinists are, you know, handling it that way either. Um, Whereby, what's that? Oh, I was just saying, fair enough. I I do know that more often than not, you ultimately go into a sphere where somebody who's reformed is going to say, we don't ultimately know why God does what he does. And, and, And I think that's a fair response. It's true. It's certainly true. We don't. Um, I was mostly talking in that instance about the analogy of the king who chooses. In that instance, it's a capricious example. And since we can't accept God as being capricious, it won't be an example that can serve the purpose. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, there was one more thing I wanted to say, but I think it would just pile on. Uh, but it, it has to do with the difficulty of language and what does it mean to be loving anymore. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that one later. One thing that I liked about how Origen handles some of this uh, difficulty of freedom of the will and God's action um, is he has such a long view, um, which is God's going to continue to be merciful. God's going to continue to act. And he's just basically waiting for the right time for us to return to him and see that he is merciful and that he is good. And it's not about him. I mean, he, he does judge, um, but, but more to the point, he continues to display um, his mercy. Um, and let's see, he, one way he says this uh, on uh, cha- still chapter one, Basically, this whole half, uh, two-thirds of this book handles this question of free will. Um, so, so still chapter one, uh, book uh, uh, or section 13. Uh, let's see. And being an immortal and eternal thing, it is not, even though it be not quickly healed, thereby shut out from salvation, which is only delayed until more, more convenient times. Moreover, it is perhaps expedient for those who have been more deeply infected with a passion of wickedness to attain salvation slowly. Um, and, and then he goes on to use the analogy of physicians and sometimes recovery takes a long time. And so Origen has this view that, that God is like this doctor um, that is applying this balm of mercy and love to a really, really sick patient. Um, and it's not about God showing, doing one-time justice to a person but a continual pattern of pouring out love, long-suffering mercy and kindness towards someone who doesn't deserve it until eventually they stop fighting and just say, I guess God just loves me that much. Now, one reason he's able to talk about it in this really long way is because basically he doesn't even view the end of corporeal bodily you know, on earth existence as the end. Um, so he does have this long view that all things will be reconciled to God. Um, so, you know, so basically if it doesn't happen in this life, well, that's not necessarily it uh, for, um, you know, a wicked person. But it, it also has this quality. I mean, and if you take away Origen's long view, it's probably harder to hold this. But as like an individual who's, you know, who hangs out with people, um, who are different than me or, or maybe, you know, even patience with myself. Like if I still act wickedly, um, I know that God will continue to be forbearing and merciful and, and will, and ultimately that mercy hopefully will change my wicked heart. Um, but it doesn't have to happen in a moment. It doesn't have to happen once. It's not just, there isn't just one shot to get it all right. It's a long view. Can I qualify something you said too, just for our listeners really quickly? You were talking there about how he says that it's God's mercy, it's his kindness, it's these things that lead pe- that lead people ultimately to reconciliation with God and to eternal life and <clears throat> into this conversion. I should make sure that our listeners don't think Origen is sentimentalist. To him, when he says mercy and kindness, he doesn't mean niceness. He, he doesn't think that that always means that God is just doing the nice thing. Um, he, he believes that God's chastening discipline is part of the mercy and the kindness of God. He uses, you mentioned he, he used the analogy of a doctor. He talks about a doctor giving 
I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but like Ipecac to somebody so he can throw up, you know, like to give him something so that he vomits harshly to get this stuff out of him. The point he's making is sometimes the things God gives us are, are hard and painful and hurt, but it's always a mercy to try to bring about uh, this, you know, this later thing. Sorry, I don't cut you off there, Trevor. No, it, I was just going to say it kind of weirdly reminds me of someone who rejects total depravity but accepts irresistible grace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of what it reminds me of. I'm like, oh, well, it's sort of like irresistible grace, basically. Everybody and, gets saved. Yeah, eventually, because it's irresistible. Are yeah. we 100%, are we 100% certain? I have not seen, like, like, I feel, I agree with you 100%. He has this long view. I still haven't exactly seen him say, with 100% certainty that definitely everybody makes it. He definitely so, um, in my book, uh, so book three, chapter five, um, part seven, um, he says this, if therefore that subjection, which the son is said to be subjected to the father is taken to be good and salutary, which is efficacious for salvation. It is a sure and logical consequence that the subjection of his enemies, which are sinners, Satan, the demons, which is said to happen to the Son of God, should also be understood to be salutary, which is to say efficacious towards salvation and useful. Um, and uh, so just as when the Son is said to be subjected to the Father, the perfect restoration, which is at the very end of all things, re- everything will be restored to its proper place, of the entire creation is announced so his enemies are said to be subjected to God. We are to understand this to involve the salvation of those subjected, subjected and the restoration of those that have been lost. Uh, well, Trevor just brought up, you said he does reference hell. But he does, I do remember but that. But he does reference hell. And, and basically, I, I want to say I saw the phrase. It was in a previous reading. It wasn't today, being, was it? No, I don't think it was today. I think it is possible because I remember thinking about that when I saw it earlier that he viewed hell as a temporary thing, perhaps as almost like a purgatory. Chad, would is yeah. that what you Because so, yeah. so there is like a hell in his view, but it's 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 also just one of these things that God uses to show kindness and mercy to bring a soul to salvation. Yeah, I mean. Um, <laughs> You know, again, I can't help but think of later theologians. Um, and and Trevor talked about the total depravity and irresistible grace. Um, and you know, basically, that's kind of Karl Barth's position. Um, and he said, Karl Barth basically says, we're so concerned with the fact that God can't love everybody and that grace can't be enough um, for everybody. And he said, far be it from me to limit the grace of God. Um, and so think that hell might in the end be empty. Um, so Karl Barth felt the need to preach hell and to teach hell as did Jesus as does the new Testament. Um, but he says, we've gotten so caught up with making sure that there were people in hell, um, and that grace wasn't sufficient. Um, and you know, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know who listens to this podcast, but, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm with Origin and Bart. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Chad. <laughs> you, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, but you also, you also, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
you also put them on the table like Bart does, which means who knows? Maybe. <laughs> so I still feel like you're not being as bold as Origin, perhaps. Maybe you are. Just so you know, I'm putting my cards on the table <laughs> for our listeners. I am not what you call a universalist, meaning I do not believe that um, I do not believe that hell is empty. I'll say that. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely convinced there is a hell, and I'm pretty sure someone's there. Yeah. I'll I mean, that yeah, I, I am definitely comfortable, though, with saying that that perhaps prevailing views of hell that dominate in certain circles are a little, they're not nuanced enough, perhaps, or they're not like, you know, or, or both of what hell is and of who gets there and why and things like that. I think that that's a, a much more complex proposition than a lot of people say. But my big problem with universalism has always been well, there's a lot of problems. One, I mean, it does, it, the scriptures speak of an eternal hell. Um, but in addition to that, there is the problem of, I, I, you know, I, I, we just can't have a sentimental view of the universe, I think. And so what I mean by that is the world we live in is obviously very harsh and hard. And so the thought that it's a world in which at the end of the, at the, end of the day, everything at the end of the day, everything just works out really nicely for everybody, just doesn't seem to square. It, it seems like there would be an injustice in that. Um, I mean, you know, I don't want to call out. I mean, we can all think of stories of people where you see this unequivocal wickedness and evil that so permeates um, the actions of a particular individual that you look at it and you see the just just the harm he brings into the lives of so many people. And you have to say, I can't imagine that this world is such that at the end of the day, everything just like, he's okay. You know, um, I know I'm not committing to too much here. I just want to make sure that our readers do understand that when we do discuss a theologian, it's not, he doesn't necessarily express our own views. To, and to kind of further flush out his view and then maybe actually just be corrected by you guys, but let's just, I just want to kind of, I want to get clear. Cause then if I'm clear, I think the audience will be clear on it. He, he essentially, you know, he quotes um, the Apostle Paul saying things like, but after your hardness and impertinent heart, treasure up to yourself wrath on the day of wrath. Um, he, he definitely thinks that basically people are kind of earning wrath. And, but then we see that he thinks the soul is immortal and that everything will be returned to himself, or he thinks everything will be, God will return everything to himself, that is. So... Yeah, is this like the wrath is basically just this purgatory that in which you kind of just burn off the sin and some people incurred more and some people incurred less? Is that? Yeah, is this almost like a precursor to the doctrine of purgatory, Chad? I mean, is it possible that? Well, um, I the only reason I would hesitate to use the word purgatory is because it has a very specific history, mostly through Dante um, in the Roman Catholic West with indulgences and other bugaboos and things that we are concerned about when we talk about purgatory. My reading of origin um, is that, yes, it functions. Purgatory is a place of cleansing. Um, and in sort of its most simple form to purgate something is to is to just clean it. 
Um, and so, yes, I actually think that that is what is happening, but I wouldn't want it to be associated with all the cultural baggage of the West, which I know that's not what you're saying. No, um, but especially because the Eastern Orthodox don't believe in purgatory. Right. Well, and part of it also, I mean, there's some other sort of curious stuff that Origen says about the possibility of other worlds. <laughs> um, and I, I think that might function into his his sort of purgatory, as it were. So again, I'd be a little worried about using that word. But yeah, I mean, again, as a place of cleansing. By the way, this work, like his, his comments on that, they remind me a lot of C.S. Lewis's stuff in The Great Divorce. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in The Great Divorce, for our listeners, if they haven't, read it it's it's a work by c.s lewis where he you know it's just a it's a story but in the story you have a man who lives in hell along with other people from hell and he and as well as several other hellish beings take a bus trip to heaven where they encounter um what they call spirits and and in heaven spirits are the beings inhabiting heaven and ghosts are the beings that inhabit hell, and they have conversations. And, you know, it's a wonderful read. It's, it's especially, I think, insightful for just examining. C.S. Lewis says that it's a book about choices, and it's, it's an analysis of a choice, what it's like to choose to reject God and what goes into that and what comes from that. But at the same time, at the end of the book, he puts forward this thing. Now, Lewis is not a universalist. He doesn't believe that everybody ultimately ends up in heaven. But he does theorize that perhaps there are those who in hell, the sufferings of hell will have that that purging effect, and that in effect, people from hell might actually end up being redeemed. Um, And he says, you can call it what you want, you can call it purgatory if you believe in purgatory, but, um, or he says, I can't remember, he gives another option. But this, all that to say, aside from the fact that he is not a universalist, his picture of what it's like for somebody to basically repent because of the purgings of hell sounds a lot like what Origen seems to hold to, hold to, turn to believe. Yeah, well, and I mean, I said I put my cards on the table. Yeah, I'd prefer to go at it like Bart, which is like, again, I don't want to commit myself and say that God must um, in fact, save everyone. Um, and I don't believe that. I I don't believe that there's coercion from our part, um, that, that sort of somehow makes it a necessity that God does. It is by no means a necessity that he must. It also reminded me of something I sent to you, Tom, from Miroslav Volf, um, who's a theologian, um, who talks about the necessity of divine vengeance. Uh, my thesis is uh, requires a belief in divine vengeance, which will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. Um, and then he goes through this whole thing, but he says, um, he says, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge and a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocents. It will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect uh, about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, um, yeah. which I just take to be this devastating critique of maybe even what I do, which is I'm a liberal um, and I live uh, and and I live in this place of of you know where it's all pleasant and it's all nice and it's suburbia and um, you know it takes that kind of sort of 
I don't know, blindness in a way to say that God should refuse to judge um, and re- refuse to be uh, take vengeance on on, on evil. Um, and I so I don't mean to suppose that God never does do you know just I mean do justice. I think that it has. I think it's inseparably linked to His mercy, as Origen wants to say. Um, I, I mean, I, I also just I mean that when I first read that, I was like floored. I mean, uh, you know, I love that quote from Wolf. Yeah, and by the way, could you share uh, Wolf's background just so because I I found that fascinating too, and I think that pertains to the quote. Yeah, so um, he's a theologian at Yale now, but he was raised in Yugoslavia actually as. Um, he was Pentecostal, which there were very few during the um, like the Serbian conflicts in the early 90s. Um, it was mostly about uh, Orthodox and Catholic Christians and then Muslim people. Um, but he had this peculiar, uh, you know, he was Pentecostal, so he was not really fitting within these historical religious traditions. Um, but he was a, a refugee, basically, and, and, and that lived through, um, you know, Slobodan Milosevic and all of the, you know, the atrocities of the early 90s. Um, and, and actually, he gave a part of this chapter that I was reading from to people that had suffered through um, some of that, the, the ethnic cleansing. Um, and so he would say, you know, that is to do theology is to take into account some of these terrible atrocities. Um, that, you know, which is kind of what Tom's referring to where you, you know, you watch this and everything in us cries out that this should not go unpunished. Yeah. In Revelation, it talks about, uh, in the book of Revelation, I mean, there are the martyrs who are underneath the throne of God crying out or the altar of God crying out day and night. How long, oh God, how long, uh, until you judge and, you know, don't get me wrong, judgment is not something to be taken lightly, and it's not to be something to be flippantly just kind of thrown out there. But when you take a look at the world and you realize the measure of human suffering at the hands of human wickedness, you recognize there must be some divine judgment. What that looks like, I'm not exactly certain. The New Testament actually doesn't give us a lot of details on it. It talks about a hell. It talks. It uses a lot of metaphors to describe that hell, and it talks about the eternality of it. But aside from that, there isn't a lot by way of description. But God must judge, and I, and I've felt that there are times when I'll read a newspaper, or I'll come across a story, or I'll listen to a person who shares an offense committed against them, and there's a part of me which does, which just yearns for God's judgment. And that doesn't mean necessarily that I want the person who did it to burn in hell forever or whatever. It just means that I want a truly just intervention. And I know that part of that is going to involve a kind of retribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Trevor. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, you know, it's, it is mine to avenge. That's what I always think of when I, when I think of this issue that, God, yeah, God already let us know. Um, don't take vengeance, because that's mine. Yeah, and that's part of Miroslav Volf's point, actually. He says that we can actually be nonviolent um, in our response to other people because we do believe in the divine judgment. But I don't want to get into Volf too much. Um, Although we should someday. <laughs> yeah. 
How many years are we from getting into Volt? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there, there was so. I mean, just to take a totally different part of this, one thing he describes in chapter two, um, section, uh, you know, it's book three, chapter two, section four. Um, he talks about our impulses. Um, and he says, we must bear in mind, however, that nothing else happens to us as a result of these good or evil thoughts, which are suggested to our heart, but a mere agitation and excitement, which urges us on to do deeds, either of good or of evil. And basically he, he has this point where he talks about what, where does our evil desire come from? Does Satan make us say, have sexual drive or, um, or what does Satan make us want to eat? Um, and like overeat or something like that. Like, you know, these sort of these, um, basically all sin, um, is, you know, is that Satan giving us that impulse? And he says, no, the impulse is natural. It's natural to want to have sex. It's, um, it's natural to want to eat. It's natural to want to do these things. What happens is when we begin become intemperate, um, and, and take them in excess, um, it just sort of escalates and then it can be further suggested to us, but the impulse isn't bad. And then in that line that I quote you, he actually even says, even to think about it and to consider it um, isn't bad. The fact that, the fact that you have the thought doesn't make it bad, um, which I mean, just as a person who was very concerned with his own thoughts as high in high school, or I mean, still now I, I found that in a way comforting um, where I was like, no, you know what? It's not even about your thoughts and it's not even about the impulse. It's what you do with them um, that, that matter. And do they agitate you as it says there, or do they make you act to do a deed to do the thing? Um, anyway, I mean, I'm, it's not groundbreaking, but I used to believe that Satan could make me think certain things. Um, and I used to believe that Satan could make me not exactly do anything, but even having the thought, um, was sinful. And like I said, I'm, he doesn't, uh, or no, I'm not saying that anybody even teaches that, um, necessarily. Um, actually, uh, you know, there's, I, I didn't quite spot what you were referencing. That quote that you had, was it from chapter four or chapter three, section five or something? I, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, chapter two, uh, part four. Okay. Cause I want to back up to, to chapter two, part two or section two. And this is really just reiterating what you said. Uh, you summarized it. It will undoubtedly follow. That is, the devil is not the cause of our feeling of hunger and thirst, so neither is he the cause of that appetency which naturally arises at the time of maturity, namely the desire of sexual intercourse. Now, it is certain that this cause is not always so set in motion by the devil that we should be obliged to suppose that bodies would not possess a desire for intercourse of that kind if the devil did not exist. So just that's just him literally saying what you just summarized. So I don't necessarily want to or have much more to comment there. I only want to say that um, I, I have heard so much over the years, people blame the devil for everything. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say this because I think we should all cut the devil a break. <laughs> um, I remember a while back when we had Caleb on the show, he almost, I felt, made the assumption that none of us believe in the devil or demons or things of that nature, at which point I said, no, Caleb, of course, I very much believe in the devil. And, and I do. I believe in the devil. I believe in demons. What I do find interesting is 
that so many Christians do have this tendency to blame him uh, for all the evils in the world. And I think that that is just not the proper view. And I think that's ultimately what um, Origin is getting at. The truth is, is that the evil we commit is caused by us. And you might look at the devil as a willing partner. You might look at the devil as somebody who is trying to encourage us into those actions. But what we must never do is use the devil as an excuse or a justification or as a way of separating ourselves from the sin that we've in fact committed. I mean, there are people who commit horrible atrocities. And I know that psychologically they justify those atrocities by the devil made me do it kind of attitude. Like uh, I saw a documentary not so long ago called Deliver Us from Evil, which Mm -hmm. is about a particular um, priest who had molested children. And that's how he spoke. He spoke of it as if there was just this weakness that he had in his life and the devil was the one who made him do it. And, And I think that psychologically that gives people an excuse to not own up to their own failings and sins. And origin here is, I think, doing that. I think he's saying, look, we are not made to sin. He's, a, he's ultimately trying to establish freedom of will from all sides, not just freedom from God making us to do something, do something, but freedom from the devil making us do something. The devil's there. He is enticing. He's contributing. He's not making us do anything. And, yeah, and so conversely, he has a defense earlier in the text of us doing good things. And he goes, and sure, we say, you know, uh, God gave us this victory. He goes, or, or you could say, you know, God protected this city. But that is, you know, but he says, but that is not to take away from the watchman sitting on the tower or the guards. And so, yeah, I, I thought that this, this, uh, this power in us. Went, went both ways for sure. Yeah, well, and that's a nice way to summarize. I mean, at least for me, the the very um, the last part of uh, what I took to be sort of just you know interesting points, which is the divine and human action um, uh, that goes on um, in you know in human action. Um, so on, like you know, to me and for mine, book three, chapter one. Uh, going he right where he does that same thing that you just quoted. He says, um, he says, he says the goodwill of ours and our ready purpose and whatever industry we may possess is both helped and strengthened by the divine assistance. Um, and, in a few other places, um, and actually at the next page, he's talked about God performing the greater part of it. Um, so, um, you know, when, when he talks about our willing and doing good deeds, he does not think that God does it all or that God does nothing. It's not just us and it's not just God. It's, you know, what we'll call later synergism. I mean, it's a synergy. It's both forces working together. So if we're doing something good, um, you know, there is this part, you know, it is this part of God working with us. And that's, that's the only way that we can do anything really good on his view. Um, and so, cause I think some people, if, if you, you know, based on how we're saying this might say, well, where's God in all of this? Um, God is very much present and God gives us grace to be able to do the good that we do. Um, we're not working outside of that. And that's kind of Pelagius's view. And that's why, uh, Augustine gets mad at Pelagius as he's like, no, you're making this all about you. Um, and grace is eff- eff- effectively useless and origin doesn't hold that view. 
Yeah, and origin. So origin doesn't use this language, so I'm not claiming this is said in origin, but I wouldn't be surprised. So here is a non-origin scholar who just has his BA in philosophy giving you his idea of what origin thinks. So take it with a huge grain of salt. But the point, <laughs> but but I I would think because it was Platonism. He has something in mind like maybe, I don't know, so I'm kind of making this up here. This is my guess, is that it's like we're participating in the will of God in the same way, you know, he would think things participate in forms. Um, your will and God's lineup. I mean, that's kind of how that's kind of how I see it uh, in the text, at least. But who knows if that's really real? Maybe someone who's read a ton of origin written about him has something cool to say about his Platonism and his theology, but which is why Ben should be here. (laughs) But uh, anyway. Well, one thing this does make me think of, and this is just in defense of our reformed brothers. One of the, you know, Trevor, a moment, or I should say at the beginning of our, of our time together, you referenced some certain things about reformed theologians or people who adhere to reformed theology that is very admirable. Right. And I think one thing that is very admirable and as as far as a motivation that underlies reformed theology is John Calvin and those who believe like him, they very much do not want to receive credit for what they've done. They very much want to make sure that people understand that goodness comes from God and that therefore any good thing they do must come from him, that there's nothing in us. And, and, and I think that there's much that is admirable from that view. It's, it's very much a position of humility, um, of humbleness. Uh, does that make it necessarily exactly right about what's going on in the cooperation between God and man? I don't think so, personally. It seems to me that there is a cooperation. I actually had a student today. He made a very interesting comment. He said, if mankind does not have any freedom in any sense, he says, then man is just an extension of God because there is literally only one will in the universe and that is God's. And therefore everything is just an extension of his will. Now, mind you, this is one of my students. He's an 18 year old kid. He's not a professional theologian, but as I thought about it, I thought, Oh man, when you really think of the theologies that adhere to a strict fatalism to the strict notion that humanity and other beings have no freedom of will, those philosophies are monistic, meaning that they do believe that there's only one thing and that one thing is God. So like, for instance, kind of the core underlying belief of Buddhists or uh, Hindus or Stoics is that there's one thing in the universe, God, and that one thing in essence manifests in different ways, but everything in that sense is just an extension of his will. That by simply by the fact that we are other than God, that we are not him, we do, therefore, like we have will. That is yeah. what it means to be other than him, right? And so I just found that a pretty insightful little thing. But at the same time, I too want that same, that same uh, piety that the Calvinist is embracing of recognizing that I don't have strength and I don't have ability, and I don't have virtue, and I need those things from God. I need those things from divine grace. Yeah. Uh, so. I do love me some stoicism. 
<laughs> I, I like Stoicism's moral yeah. uh, philosophy. Yes. Yeah. I like the idea that Stoicism was guys sitting around on a porch talking philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll, we should call it a day here. Okay, I, I would, before we leave, just want to point out that, again, Origin brings up that very interesting cosmology of the souls being reborn. I know we've talked about it already, but when I read it, I do think of Plato. And this, I, you know, and he goes into a lot of detail about how there were worlds before this one, and there'll be worlds after this one, and that the same souls are basically going, traversing through these. I just found it an interesting thing that is very unlike any other view I've ever seen put forward by a Christian theologian. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week for our second to last podcast on origin with book four of On First Principles. Check back next week and let us know what you think of the podcast on an iTunes review or on Facebook.